so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Today's episode of Weekly Tech is going to be a little bit different from our normal interviews. Josh and I recently wrote a joint article entitled, Should Amazon Be Able to Ban Books at the ERLC? Because of a recent move by Amazon to remove Ryan T. Anderson's three-year-old book, When Harry Became Sally, from its online marketplace. All of this without notification or even a detailed explanation of what happened. I want to briefly update you on a couple developments since we recorded this podcast. On Thursday, March 11th, the company explained its decision in a letter last Thursday sent by Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, Mike Lee of Utah, Mike Brahm of Indiana, and Josh Hawley of Missouri, stating that they would no longer sell Ryan Anderson's book When Harry Became Sally because it violated their hate speech policy, and Amazon has chosen not to sell books that frame LGBTQ plus issues as mental illnesses. The letter was sent by Amazon's vice president of public policy, Brian Hussman, referring to sexual identities that included lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and others. While on one hand, we welcome the clarification as to the exact reason that Ryan Anderson's book was removed from Amazon and the Kindle and Audible platforms, there are a number of questions remaining as to exactly what kind of impact this decision has on booksellers moving forward, as well as to the debates over free expression in an increasingly diverse society. Today, we're going to dialogue about this removal, as well as some of the underlying issues related to digital governance. So, Josh, as we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about what happened to Anderson's book and the details of the removal? Yeah. Hey, Jason. Uh, It's a privilege to join you on the Weekly Tech Podcast. Uh, For those who don't know, uh, Jason and I have been friends for about 10 years now. We went to Southern Seminary together and have worked together at the ERLC for many years and have co-written a number of pieces on various issues. Uh, Jason, during your uh, setup there for the question, it was interesting. I want to clarify for people, we didn't uh, we didn't say that Amazon should be able to ban books at the ERLC so much as we wrote an article at ERLC.com saying Amazon shouldn't be able to ban books uh, or talking about whether or not it should. So yeah, that's right. In this case, here's what happened. It was, a, it was like a Sunday afternoon and all of a sudden, you know, somebody pings Ryan Anderson on Twitter. And Ryan is now the president of EPPC, which is the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which has a similar name to the ERLC. Uh, we're both, you know, public policy agencies that deal specifically with things under the penumbra of ethics. And he had written a book on the subject of transgenderism called When Harry Became Sally. And the title is provocative and purposefully jarring because he's dealing with something that is 
well, frankly, radical. He's dealing with the subject of transgenderism. And so somebody, uh, you know, reaches out to Ryan on Twitter and says, hey, I just tried to buy your book from Amazon and it's not there. And so then Ryan does some, you know, clearly does some brief investigation and finds out, yeah, that's right. Like his book is nowhere to be found on Amazon.com. And so, you know, at first we always encourage people and we, as in you and I and others, encourage people to take a deep breath. When you see things like this that don't really add up, um, sometimes it is simply a glitch. It's just, you know, some kind of error somewhere. And so you don't necessarily assume uh, malfeasance or that there is, you know, some kind of purpose or, or uh, nefarious intent here, but Ryan starts to dig in and try to figure out the answer to why, why is my book not here? And not only is his book not there, but apparently for a short time, when you would try to search for his book, it would actually present you books that were arguing contrary to Ryan's argument in his book. And still, there was no evidence that his book was ever listed on Amazon's website. And I think exactly what you're saying, I think it's really important for listeners to understand is not only was his book removed in terms of being sold on Amazon.com, but even used copies. Often with the Amazon marketplace, you can purchase used copies and all his entire book and every trace of his book was removed from Amazon.com. And some of those um, that were promoted initially afterwards were even a specific rebuttal to his specific book. Um, it was kind of a riff on when Harry became Sally. So I think that's really important for listeners to understand what this issue. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And so it turns out that that this was certainly something that happened intentionally, as opposed to some kind of a glitch or other kind of error. And this has led to all kinds of conversation about whether or not it was appropriate for, for Amazon to remove the book and what this means for the future, which I'm sure we're going to get into all of that in this conversation. But as of today, or as of this recording, uh, there's no evidence that Amazon has any intention of restoring the book to the marketplace. And I think it's important to note that days after the removal was discovered, finally, Amazon, I think it was actually Wednesday after the book was removed, responded by saying that Anderson's book violated their offensive content policy. And at Amazon, like a lot of technology companies, Josh, they have various content moderation policies, and these are actually for good reason. Not only should they be able to control uh, certain types of offensive or hateful speech or even dangerous speech on their platforms or through even their marketplaces in the Amazon's case, but content moderation is actually encouraged by things like Section 230, and this is something that makes the internet a safe and even enjoyable place for us to be on. I think it's really interesting to note here about Amazon's specific policy that they were saying uh, Ryan Anderson's book violated. Early on in their content moderation guidelines, they say, quote, as a bookseller, we believe that providing access to the written word is important, including content that might be considered objectionable. And that's kind of how they start off their content guidelines for books that are sold on their marketplace. And I think it's really important to note here that Amazon actually started as a company selling books online. They started uh, early on in 1994 with the goal of selling books and distributing the written word because of the importance of the written word, not only in our society, but the ways in our communities and our, even our churches are built. So broad access to the written word allows for this free exchange of ideas. But further on down in their content guidelines, Amazon clearly walks this kind of broad statement about the value of the written word back significantly. They say that content that may be considered objectionable doesn't actually include objectionable content, which I thought was really kind of ironic about the way the policy is written. They go on to state in that specific offensive or objectionable content part Quote, we don't sell certain types of content that we determine as hate speech promotes the abuse or sexual exploitation of children. 
that which contains pornography, glorifies rape or pedophilia, activates terrorism, or, and this is really key, other material that we deem inappropriate or offensive. And I think this is kind of a broad category. And so can you help us, Josh, to understand a little bit about how Ryan Anderson's book in Amazon's mind fits into this objectionable content guideline? Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty obvious. And unfortunately, because Amazon has been so circumspect about this, uh, it, it seems pretty obvious, but some of it is guesswork, that it is the substance of Ryan's book and its arguments about transgenderism. And it is really trying to pre- present a both a moral and an ethical and a scientific approach uh, to the topics of gender and sexuality. This is ultimately about Ryan arguing from a viewpoint that Amazon doesn't approve of or appreciate. And so I thought it was interesting when you were talking about how they don't sell certain kinds of objectionable content, even though they have this kind of broad policy of where we want to, we believe that, you know, all kinds of ideas are important and we believe fundamentally in values of free expression. They, they basically end up saying we, we will sell on the marketplace objectionable content, but only the objectionable content we're okay with. And I thought that was very telling. And one thing I think that's really important to note in this whole issue with Amazon and removing Anderson's book is that Anderson wrote a really helpful piece in First Things after the book was actually removed from Amazon talking about some of the issues and some of the potential ramifications. And early on in the in the piece, he actually cites some of the people who are praising his book. This is a well-researched book uh, presenting typically from a natural law perspective of understanding gender ideology, understanding transgenderism, and a lot of the uh, issues surrounding that. This book was actually praised by the former psychiatric-in-chief at John Hopkins University, a longtime psychology professor at New York University, a professor of medical ethics at Columbia Medical School, a professor of psychological and brain sciences at Boston University, a professor of neurobiology at the University of Utah, a distinguished professor at Harvard Law School, an eminent legal philosopher at Oxford, as well as a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton. So I think that even though it's a really long list and can be kind of overwhelming for folks, I think that goes to show the depth and the well-researched nature of this book. And the other interesting thing to note for me is that this book had actually been on the platform for over three years. This isn't a new book. This didn't come out last week or a month ago. This book has been out. It's been a bestseller, and it was recently going into a paperback phase from a hardback. So if you don't come from the publishing industry, what that actually means is that the book sold so well that after a number of reprintings, they wanted to do a paperback edition to make the cost cheaper so that they continue to spread the book and uh, have folks to interact with it. Jason, I think that's a, such a good point because like one of the things we want to stress, you you mentioned earlier about whether or not this is a violation of the freedom of speech and how we should think about this related to the First Amendment. And like he, here is the situation we're looking at. Amazon took a book off of the marketplace that is one, incredibly well-researched. Like, so it's not as though they said, hey, we're not going to publish this book because it's just bad. It's poor quality. It's not worth selling to our customers. Uh, And if anybody who spent any time on amazon.com at all can see that they they sell all kinds of things from things that are uh, very expensive and very valuable or or very uh, professional in quality to things that are are far less so uh, in terms of being of inferior quality or cheaper or 
any any of those things, and that that transcends whether we're talking about their book selling or their uh, you know general marketplace. So this is a this is a really well written and researched book. The other thing about it is that it it was a it was a strong selling book. Uh, it actually uh, for multiple years now or three years running had been a book that had done a reasonable uh, and sometimes you know more than reasonable uh, volume of book sales. And so it wasn't as though uh, Amazon had the claim that they were taking this book off the marketplace because it, it wasn't worth having there. It was taking up space on the digital bookshelves or something like that. The The answer is uh, that this was a decision by Amazon to police a certain kind of speech. And this brings us to the question of whether or not this is you know any kind of violation of civil liberties, because we talk all the time about the importance. It's, it's, an, it's more than just a First Amendment freedom. It's like an American ideal to talk about the freedom of expression. And we, we think that speech is fundamentally important. We think that the free exchange of ideas is something that is not only that's not only good, but it's something that is critical and necessary for the functioning of our society. And so a lot of times when we see these issues related to censorship, people will ask the questions, is this a violation of your First Amendment rights? And and in this case, uh, Amazon is a private company. Though, despite being a private company, they make up an overwhelming number uh, or percent of the actual book selling market. And so you mentioned they started off as a book selling company uh, in the early days of the internet and have become this behemoth where uh, the last stats that I saw showed something like they account for over 50% of physical books sold in the United States and maybe something like over 80% of digital books sold in the United States. And that is just a massive influence. And so while as a private company, it is not a violation of the First Amendment because they they are, you know, the First Amendment exists to protect you from government overreach and not from the overreach of these private companies. Amazon is so large that there are open questions as to whether or not the government would step in to regulate uh, their they, these kinds of decisions that they make in terms of the kind of content that they're going to offer. And I think this takes us probably to a to a natural question, which is you mentioned earlier, Section 230, which is something that for non-tech people, uh, it's something that we hear a lot, especially uh, in the days where we've been talking about censorship a lot more since uh, Facebook and Twitter made the decision to uh, to deplatform uh, President Trump's account. Maybe, Jason, you could help me and I'm sure a lot of other people by just giving us an overview of, of what Section, 30, Section 230 is and what is the current debate all about. Yeah, for listeners, one resource I definitely want to recommend you listen to is a few months ago, at the beginning of January, right after the attacks of the United States Capitol, I had David French on the podcast, and we taught we have a substantial section of that podcast dialoguing about Section 230, what it is. If you're not familiar with David French, he's um, a lawyer. Um, he specializes in free speech issues, and he is – uh, has intricate knowledge of Section 230 and kind of all the debates surrounding it. But essentially, 230, I think, is one of the most talked about telecommunication statutes in America, also one of the most uh, least understood of all of these type of things. Often it becomes the scapegoat as repeal or reform Section 230. We hear a lot of these coming from the left and the right about we need to rework this statute because it's a it's over uh, two decades old at this point. It was part of Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act. It's part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And essentially what these uh, 23 words 
words that created the internet, as one author says, what this, the law that actually helped us to gain the modern internet is kind of web 2.0. So when we came to the ability to have kind of a social internet or a social connectivity, social media platforms, et cetera, where you had users being able to post content on these platforms, uh, like email, or not only like email, but specifically message boards and social media platforms and the like, is that you started to have a number of lawsuits being drawn up. This was surrounding days of CompuServe and Prodigy, where there were internet, they had these online message boards, and there were posts being put on that were uh, defamation or a number of uh, issues surrounding kind of indecent or objectionable content being placed on these. And the ISPs, the technology companies were actually being sued and being liable for that content that was posted on their platform. And so what it did is you had a number of conflicting court decisions. So Congress decided in 1996 to add in Section 230, which essentially said that these platforms were uh, not liable for the content that third-party users, their users, posted on the platforms. And so it kind of – it was a liability shield. But in exchange for that liability shield, these technology companies were required to implement certain types of content moderation policies. So I think it's really important for us when we're talking about Section 230 to understand that one of the goals and the intent behind Section 230 is actually to create content moderation because these companies were hesitant to either take down content because if they took down content, they could be liable saying that they had knowledge of it or that they realized it was on their platform. But if they didn't take it down, they also could be liable for it. And so it was kind of a catch-22. And so Congress sought to clear that up by voting in uh, Section 230 of the Communication and Decency Act. But even Section 230 is not overly defined about exactly what is considered otherwise objectionable content, what should stay up, what should come down, what these policies look like. And I think one of the things that's helpful to understand is that 230 is not a guarantee that these companies are neutral in their content moderation policies. That's really important because um, we want third-party companies to be able to kind of uh, set up their parameters and their content moderation policies as private companies. And I think that's something, Josh, you mentioned earlier that's really important here is the relationship between the government and these third-party companies is that it's actually a violation of my free speech and religious freedom if the government steps in for those things, but not actually a third-party company. But this is where this gets really complicated uh, today is because you have these kind of internet behemoths, these large technology companies that wield enormous influence over our public discourse, the availability of products. And as an aside, um, over the last few weeks, I thought to myself, I'm going to start seeing if I can purchase directly from publishers or even other booksellers online. And it actually is kind of difficult and kind of frustrating because it's so easy to jump on Amazon that controls up to almost 80%, I think, of the book sell market, book selling market oh, yeah. to jump on, add them all click. to my cart, check out and be done. Exactly. And so I, it's it's one of those things that Amazon presents a unique case because other platforms in, that have been brought into this conversation are in terms of Walmart.com, Target. And as an author, my book is not listed anymore on Target. And it wasn't because Target decided that my book was objectionable content. They just don't sell every book through their platform. They're not a large bookseller. And so they only sold certain titles similarly with Walmart. But interestingly, all of these actually had Ryan Anstern's book up for almost three years because it was a bestseller and it was well-researched. And so I think that's a little bit of getting into what is Section 230, why that matters, and helping to frame up the argument a little bit. 
Yeah, I got to tell you, that's super helpful for people like me who don't follow all of this back and forth. Uh, I do think it's good, you know, just kind of speaking about the broader ideas of free speech for a second. Uh, we, we are, I think it's a good thing that a company like Facebook decides that pornography is not something that is acceptable on its platform. Uh, honestly, I wish that certain other platforms provided or use that level of oversight or regulation because uh, I don't think that uh, it is a violation of anybody's free speech to not allow pornography to be displayed on social media websites. And so I think that within the parameters of Section 230, I've heard you express this idea before that maybe it does need to be uh, amended in certain ways, but that with the overall uh, contours of this legislation, it is really aimed at the right things about trying to uh, give these platforms the freedom to rein in and to regulate certain kinds of dangerous or objectionable material, but also not making them liable for anything that is posted on their platform, because I don't want Facebook trying to censor whether or not the ideas that I post on my own Facebook page are right or wrong. Yeah, and I think especially surrounding Section 230, Christians will disagree on the extent of 230, um, the ways that government should interact on these things in terms of content moderation. And that's understandable. There's going to be broad debate. There's broad debate within the technology industry even about what should happen here. But I think one important thing to note is that Section 230 is a privilege. It's not something that's written into the Constitution. It's It came about in 1996. And even in the years since, it's been refined um, back in early. Uh, kind of the middle part of uh, the 2010s. Uh, I think it was about 2017, 2018. Uh, the ERLC actually supported the FOSTA amendment or a change to Section 230 that actually made these online platforms liable for sex trafficking or sex work that was being promoted on these platforms to make these platforms liable for that type of content so that they would implement even stronger content moderation policies. And even one thing that you noted earlier that I wanted to emphasize was the role of pornography is, as you said, Instagram and Facebook, um, now that they're all part of Facebook proper, they actually have a content moderation policy that bans the use of pornography or the sharing of pornography on these platforms. And often these things are done and found by algorithmic technology. So when you try to post a picture like that, Facebook will automatically scan it and ban it. Or if it does get up, soon it will be reported and flagged and taken down. That's not the same on other policies um, across the industry, including places like Twitter, that actually have a substantial amount of pornography on these platforms. So I don't want to get into the kind of the pornography debate specifically because we are focused a little bit more on content moderation, specifically around that hate speech policy that, in my opinion, and what we wrote in the piece that we'll link to in the show notes, is overly broad and really ill-defined. Because often what these policies, not only do they contradict what Amazon talked about earlier about selling objectionable content, but often what's now happening uh, within a lot of content moderation debates is that the definition of hate speech is actually being expanded to include basically anything I disagree with. And that is being specifically is happening within issues of sexuality and transgenderism, uh, where these policies are so broadly defined uh, that not only can the company interpret them the way that they want, but even the content moderators themselves can actually interpret these statutes very similar or very differently depending on who it is. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right point to make, Jason. And when we circle back to the actual issue of Amazon, you know, we we took a position in the piece. We didn't just describe what happened. We came down on the side of saying that Amazon did the wrong thing. And the truth is that there's not just one clear reason why Amazon did the wrong thing. There are actually a number of different factors that led us there. But one of the 
one of the things that is really apparent is that when you have a company like Amazon that is as large as it is, whether or not the government steps in to regulate this, it has a responsibility to wield its influence uh, in ways that serve the public good. And stifling conversation and refusing to allow certain ideas into the debate is is not a way to foster uh, public debate or civil dialogue. And in this case, what we're talking about is it, it stripped from the marketplace a, a book containing ideas that made a meaningful contribution to this discussion. And we're talking about some of the most important issues here in terms of human sexuality and what does it mean to be male and female. For Amazon to make this decision, uh, to to silence this book, because effectively it didn't just leave Amazon. Then as you mentioned, it left Target, it left Walmart, and it is getting increasingly more difficult to track down the book. Though you can still get it directly from his book uh, publisher, this is, this is a real issue because one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot over the last week or so is that some of these mega corporations like uh, Amazon have the opportunity to to set a trajectory, not just for themselves, but for a lot of other companies and institutions about whether or not we're going to live in a divided public square where everything is divided into right and left or conservative and liberal or progressive or traditional. That's not the kind of American future that we really want to see or to, to foster or bring in. We want to be the kind of society where we can learn how to disagree with one another in an agreeable way, where we can debate the things that are fundamental and most important. And it was really, really disappointing. And honestly, I, still something that I hope that they reverse and walk back to see Amazon take that step of, of removing Ryan's book, because for us, it just seem, it seems like this is just the beginning. One thing that I found really encouraging after all of this happened is you even had transgender activists coming out and saying that Amazon made the wrong call here, not only because is the book not widely available, but the book isn't even available for those who want to dialogue and have an intelligent dialogue and try to de even debunk some of Anderson's claims in this book. They simply do not have access to this. So we don't have that free exchange and free flow of ideas in our public discourse, which actually make our ideas stronger and help us to understand our own positions in, in light of uh, opposite and kind of polarizing positions. And so in many ways, this not only was the wrong move because they took it down because of what was in it, but it actually is stifling robust public discourse, which is something that's in dire need uh, today is we often have this kind of polarized society where we're always kind of going at each other. It's us versus them. One of the things, as you said, that I think was really helpful is that Amazon has the opportunity and still has the opportunity. They can actually restore this book if they choose but to foster a healthier and more robust public dialogue that I think will be really helpful as we continue to move forward. Because honestly, there is a lot of complicating factors surrounding this. And I think we've already said earlier, but even Christians will disagree on exactly what's the best path forward here. But one of the things that I want to do through our work here at the ERLC, specifically on technology issues, is cast a better vision for kind of the digital public square and where we're headed. And a lot of the controversies surrounding that, because this isn't an isolated issue. Even just a few weeks before Amazon's removal of Anderson's book, we also saw Twitter implement a hate speech policy on a transgender issue as well, which it seems to me that transgenderism is kind of one of the presenting issues in terms of hate speech policy and something that Christians really need to give a lot of thought to, not only the issue itself, but how do we govern that in the online space? Because Twitter, and we'll link to this article in the show notes, actually removed a post um, specifically surrounding Dr. Rachel Levine's um, nomination to the Health and Human Services Department, 
under the Biden administration. And Amazon actually removed a tweet because they used their hate speech policy that specifically includes misgendering an individual and or dead naming an individual, meaning using a former name after one has transitioned to a new gender identity. And so you can see how complicated these questions are going to get because of the complicated nature of our public debate. But I think one of the things, as you said, is that these companies have a responsibility not to stifle public discourse, to encourage a stronger and more robust public discourse. And honestly, I sit down face to face of having conversations with one another, even if we disagree with one another and doing so in a convictional way, but specifically in a grace-filled and kind way. And I think this is kind of a vision for the digital public square and almost a public theology for engaging kind of the technology industry that's really in dire need within the Christian community. Yeah, as Christians, we want to be the kind of people who can speak into these issues uh, in the public square, even some of these most the, the most divisive or complex topics that we might take up to engage. Uh, but we we want to also help frame the parameters of, of how these debates should be played out. And so, you know, sometimes you'll hear people in our culture uh, insist that something like disagreement is violence or that people need to be protected from certain kinds of ideas. And honestly, that's just something that uh, I personally totally dissent from. I think that it is really, really important that people have access to all kinds of ideas and competing arguments. And as I agree uh, with all the people who have have said before me that the answer to objectionable speech is more speech. It's not to silence speech or to take it away. And so we, you know, Jason, you and I have spent some time thinking about this and we have, we have drawn certain lines in the sand where we would recommend, uh, for these, you know, social media or digital companies to, uh, to step in and actually regulate or moderate certain kinds of content. But that is, uh, only under the, only the most extreme circumstances where we're talking about something that is objectionable as pornography or human trafficking or something like that, or when we're talking about things that actually lead to physical harm. We want to display all the sensitivity in the world toward those who are hurting or suffering, and especially with something as fraught and difficult as issues related to gender and sexuality. But we still want to to be able to tell what we believe is not only truth, but it is God's truth to the world when we discuss these issues. And the fact that we might come down on the wrong side of the sexual revolution or the cultural zeitgeist or what whatever it is, we think it's critical that these dissenting voices, not just of Christians, but of all kinds of people, have access to the public square and have access to what we are now talking about as a digital public square. Josh, you and I wrote back in January about the decision by Twitter and Facebook to suspend the sitting president in the days after the Capitol attack. And we talked a little bit about the nuance and the difference between inciting violence versus issues surrounding hate speech policies. And I think we've already talked about this a good bit today, but I think it's helpful to understand is that there actually is a lot of really good work going on within these companies of helping to refine and think through these uh, policies. Specifically, one of the areas that we've been really fortunate as the RLC to be able to engage on is specifically surrounding Facebook and the development of their oversight board in terms of their policies and being a voice at having having a seat at the table when we're talking about and when they're thinking about how to change these policies or make them stronger or in which ways should these be applied in various situations. But I think one thing that we need to keep in mind as we approach a lot of these things is that they're often more complicated. We alluded to this very early on about the way that Anderson went about. He didn't immediately go to 
Twitter and talk about how he had been censored. He tried to dig a little bit deeper and try to understand what was going on here. And I think that's a really pertinent issue for Christians as we step into these things is realizing that a lot of these conversations and a lot of these issues that we're having are a lot more complex than they may seem. It's one thing to see something removed online, but often there may be other reasons going into it. In this specific case with Amazon, it's very clear what actually took place, even though Amazon has not been overly clear about why they implemented this on a three-year-old book. But in terms of content being removed, that's something that when these pieces are removed, sometimes it's done by algorithmic technology and under a human review that has actually restored or removed. And then there's oftentimes for human appeals and things like that. We're at a very interesting crossroads as a society in terms of digital governance and content moderation. And one of the things that we want to do um, as the ERLC is to help lead in that conversation. And so for you listeners of Weekly Tech, I want to give you a little sneak peek, a kind of a peek under the hood about something that a big research project that's coming out um, here in a couple months uh, from the ERLC is that it's what we're calling the Digital Public Square Project, where we're going to seek to not only understand the basic contours of the debate and the issues at stake in content moderation, digital governance, and being able to produce that as a public report, but also get into understanding what does it look like not only for Christians to engage in this space from a public, theolo- public theology standpoint, but also to put forth a statement of principles and understanding and kind of modeling how we think these policies should not only be set up to have a healthy and flourishing society, but also the ways that we should go about having levels of human appeal and being able to navigate these really tense subjects as a nation together and doing that as a society. And so you can keep up to date with that work by signing up for the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. That's a great place not only to uh, get kind of a big story for the week, um, a big pressing technology issue and how we as the ERLC navigate that, but then also staying up to date on the latest technology news. And so one of the ways that we'll keep you up to date on this Digital Public Square project is making sure uh, that you sign up for the Weekly Tech newsletter. Again, you can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Well, Josh, I want to thank you for joining me here on Weekly Tech. This is a little different than we normally do. Normally, I interview someone. Uh, but this conversation, this back and forth, I think has been really helpful. I hope it's helpful for listeners. And I really look forward to future collaborations on these important issues with you. Yeah, Jason. Thanks so much, man. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you want to stay up to date on the ERLC's work in technology ethics and the digital public square, make sure to sign up for our Weekly Tech email briefing. Each Monday morning, you'll receive updates on our work in this area, a big story for the week, as well as links to the top technology news. This will also be chock full of resources to help you to think about these pressing issues of technology and society. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Also, if you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.